Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're continuing our study through Luke's gospel. And a couple of weeks ago, when we left off in our series, we read about Jesus selecting his 12 disciples whom he would name apostles. So Jesus, he went up on, on a mountain somewhere in Galilee to get alone with his father. And after an all-nighter, an all-night prayer session with his father, he chose the 12, and then he came down with them off the mountain, and he began to minister to the crowds uh, that were gathered there. And in verse 17, we read that he came down with them, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So... They're coming from all over, right? With his 12 disciples gathered around him, he's, he's now ministering to these crowds of people and he was healing those who were sick and, and he was freeing those who were plagued by unclean spirits because that's what Jesus does. You know, we heard already this morning that, the, that, the, that Satan, right? The thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came to bring life, right? And that's what he's doing. He's taking back ground from Satan. And so anyway, in this scene... Well, we're picking up our text this morning. Jesus, along with his newly selected disciples, they're, they're there on this level place somewhere in the region of Galilee, uh, on, a, on a place somewhere below one of the mountains. There's a lot of mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee, so it could have been really along any of those mountains. But Luke tells us that there's a great crowd of his disciples that are gathered there. These are people who have also made the decision to become his followers. So when we talk about the disciples, sometimes we think of the 12, right? They were a select group that God called out from among his disciples, which we talked about last week. But so you got a great crowd of his disciples there, as well as a great multitude of people who had traveled from all over the land. They're, they're coming from, from the south, from Judea and from Jerusalem. They're coming from up on the coast of the Mediterranean, Tyre and, and Sidon. And we're not talking about, you know, 20 to 30 people gathering here, right? We're not talking about a small group. This is a, like a mega church gathering. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people gathered, and they're there on this level place to hear and to, and to see Jesus. Now, Back in chapter four, we had read that Jesus was traveling. He was going around from village to village, city to city, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and he was preaching the good news about God's kingdom. Jesus said, I must, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. This is what he's doing. He's traveling around preaching the good news. And today, we have the incredible privilege, as I already prayed, we have the privilege to hear some of the words that Jesus spoke as he taught his disciples, as he was teaching those who had become his followers. Actually, just let you know right out of the back. So I, by the way, so I told my wife this week, because she was picking music, she said, what are you gonna be covering this week? She said, I assume you're gonna do like verses 20 to 26. I'm looking ahead. And I said, no, 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 I'm planning to do verses 20 to 49. Because Jesus did it in one sermon. It's just another way that Jesus is better than me, okay? So she's like, oh, okay, all right, 20 to 49 it is. I had to call the office this week on Friday and call Jen Biro. I said, so um, change of plans. We're actually going to do 20 to 26. Um, so we're, we're, we're not here for 29 verses this morning. We're doing, we're doing seven. But... Um, and I don't know how long it's going to take. I would tell you we're going to do the, all of it next week, but yeah, that probably won't happen either. But anyway, this sermon of Jesus that he did in one sitting, uh, this teaching is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And that's because in verse 17, it says that he came down to a level place, a, a plane. Uh, in the offices, we got laughed. Said, no, don't confuse. This is not the sermon on the, the airplane, not that type of a plane. They didn't, they didn't have those yet. But the reason why that you know, scholars and Bible teachers call this the Sermon on the Plain is because it's helpful to distinguish this sermon from another famous sermon of Jesus, which is called the Sermon on the, 
on the mount. Good job. So the Sermon on the Mount, that's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, I would encourage you to do that this week. In Matthew chapter 5, we're told that Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Okay, so that's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But as you can see, the Sermon on the Plain, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on, or, or down, he came down. Uh, no, I'm reading the wrong one. Up. I'm like, why it says up? No, it's supposed to be down, over here. <laughs> he came down with them, and he stood on a level place, all right? So that's why, they, that's why they do that. But for those of you, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount already, and you've read the, the Sermon on the Plain, then you know that there are a lot of similarities between between these two teachings of Jesus. There's so many similarities between these two sermons that some scholars believe that these two messages are actually the same sermon, taught at the same time to the same group of people. They believe that it's the same event, just Luke has his version and Matthew has, has his. Now, granted, Matthew's version is longer right? Five, six. Can you imagine how long it would take me to go through that, right? Three chapters. People have taught through the Sermon on the Mount and taken years, right, just to go through those three chapters. But it's understandable that Matthew would have had more material because Matthew and Luke, they're they're writing to two different audiences. They, They have two different audiences in mind when they're writing. Matthew is writing to a primarily, right, a Jewish audience, But Luke is writing primarily to Gentiles. And so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll you'll pick up, there's a distinctively Jewish flavor. He talks a lot about the law and other things like that. So the second reason, though, why um, it's not surprising that these two accounts are, are so similar is because neither one of these accounts neither one of them, and we got to change the way we think about these sermons of Jesus. Neither one of them are an actual word-for-word transcription of what Jesus taught that. First of all, Luke wasn't even there, right? Luke probably wasn't even there that day. We know that Luke carefully researched to write this gospel. And he said, you know, he talked to eyewitnesses who were there, and he wrote down what was Jesus teaching that day, right? I mean, I think it's safe to say that, that these are very, these are not word-for-word transcriptions. If they were, think about this for a second. If they were, then this Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, it would, it would have taken Jesus four minutes to preach. Four minutes. And I know this because I timed it. I, I sat down and said, how long would it take to preach this message? And some of you are thinking, that would be awesome. <laughs> you... you you should totally do that. Just read it to us, Chris. Let the Holy Spirit help us understand it. We can all go home, all right? That's not gonna happen. So, so, but even with their differences, even with their differences, it, it is possible, it is possible that these two teachings may have been the same event, um, Luke's Sermon on the Plain and Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's possible that Jesus, because it, it's confusing, right? Because you see, well, he, here he's on a plane and here he's on a mountain. But it is possible that maybe Jesus came down from, you know, with his disciples down from the mountain. He ministered to the people and then seeing the, the crowd of disciples, he, he goes back up the hill just a little bit, just goes back up the hill a little bit and still on more of a level place, not all the way up the mountain, but just up the mountain a little bit, sits down and begins to, to teach them it, that that is definitely possible. Dr. Don Delancey, who was here with us in April, and he's the one that's going to be leading us on our trip to Israel in January, he believes that one possible location for either one of these sermons is along the lower hillside of Mount Arbel. And if you look at that picture on the screen, you can see how crowds could have gathered there along the lower hills beneath this mountain. There's actually, if you looking on to the right, you can see there's actually a valley that cuts right there between Arbel and, and another cliff, and it cuts, and that's the, that's the road that people would have traveled. It's called the Valley of the Doves, and that's how they would travel uh, walking from Galilee to go down to Jerusalem. 
And so this would have been a, like, almost like, think of it as a foot highway, right, at the time of Jesus. So crowds of people traveling to and from Galilee would travel through the Valley of the Doves, and it would not be unrealistic to picture a crowd of people gathering, gathering there along the lower hills as Jesus taught them. But that's just one possible location. There's all kinds of other locations in Galilee where it could have been. So it is possible. It's possible that Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, same, same event. However, many scholars, including Dr. Delancey, believe that these are probably two separate events preached by Jesus to two different crowds of people. You see, it's important for us to remember that Jesus was an itinerant preacher, okay? He, he didn't preach in the same synagogue week after week after week after week after week, okay? He traveled and he visited different synagogues. And, and the same thing happens today, right? Pastor Dan is preaching today on the coast and he's preaching the same message that he preached here last week to a different crowd of people. Do you think it will be word for word the same? No, of course not. He's gonna tailor it and he's gonna adjust it to the crowd that is sitting in front of him. And so, so Jesus is traveling around from synagogue to synagogue, preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom. And today, in the Sermon on the Plain, we get to see a glimpse of some of the flavor of what he taught on this particular day as he was teaching in Galilee. So, anyway, maybe it's the same event. Maybe it's not, right? But at the end of the day, does it matter? I mean, is that what matters? No, what matters is what did Jesus teach? What was his message? What was he teaching to his disciples? So let's, let's begin reading in verse 20. Luke chapter six, verse 20. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. All right, let's stop there. Like, oh man, this is gonna be a long message. He got like eight words in. I want to make sure that we understand who the audience is that Jesus is talking to. Who, who is Jesus' intended audience here as he's teaching? It's his, his disciples, not just the 12, but all those in the crowd. He looks up, he sees them, and he says, it's time for me to teach. I need to explain some things to my followers, my disciples. Now, there were certainly other people in the crowd that day. We know that there were great crowds that came from all over. Not all of them were probably followers. Not all of them were disciples. Some of them were skeptics. There could have been enemies. We've been seeing a lot of Jesus' enemies in the early chapters, right? The Pharisees, have been, they're following him around everywhere he goes. They followed him out into a grain field a couple of weeks ago, right, to see what he was doing. So there could have been Pharisees there. There could have been enemies. There could have been skeptics. There could have been those who were honestly seeking, trying to find out, is We've, we're hearing about this guy named Jesus who might be the Messiah. Let's go check him out for ourselves. They're still undecided. But we know that there's a large group of followers, disciples, people who have already decided to follow Jesus. They've made some hard decisions. Some of them have left their jobs. They're, they're following him around and, and learning from who they believe is the Messiah. So it's important for us to understand that, that the teaching that we're about to read the teaching we're about to read is not primarily an evangelistic message. This isn't the passage that you run to to say, how do I become a follower of Jesus? That's not what he's talking about here. He's not preaching to a bunch of unbelievers. He's talking to people who believe that he is the Messiah. They've made the decision to follow him. This message is geared towards disciples. So if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, and I hope you are, then this message, this teaching is for you. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're here and you're like someone in the crowd that's like, I'm just checking him out for myself or actually I'm an enemy of Jesus. I hope that's not the case, but it, he has enemies still today, right? If you're here, then just listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. But you need to know this right out of the gate. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, this is like, wow, hard stuff, Okay. This week is mild. Next week is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, we are, wow, love your enemies. Yikes. That's next week. Whew. Glad we don't have to love our enemies this week. So, right? So, but you need to understand, this is tough, tough stuff that we're going to be getting into in this sermon. And, and the first step, you, you cannot do what Jesus is telling you to do here if you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, okay? So this... The first step, you can't apply his teaching to your life until you've submitted to him as your Lord. 
okay? So that's first step. So if you're not a believer, listen. Listen, take a listen to what he's saying. See if it makes sense and make the decision to follow him. Then you have the very first and most important ingredient to be able to start applying these truths to your life. So here he is. Jesus is teaching. He's talking to his followers and he's gonna talk to them about what life in his kingdom is really like. He's gonna talk to them about what life as a follower of Jesus looks like. How do you live as a follower of Jesus in this this world. That's what Jesus is going to be dealing with. So here's how we're going to break it up. We're going to break it up into hopefully not four messages, but we'll see. But the Sermon on the Plain is going to talk about the way that being a follower of Jesus should change the way that, well, in verses 20 to 26, we're going to see how he's going to, uh, being a follower of Jesus should change how we view our circumstances, okay? Especially the suffering that we endure as a result of of following Jesus. That's today. That's what we're going to look at. Next week, we're going to begin in verses tw- uh, verse 27. In verses 27 to 38, we're going to see how being a follower of Jesus changes the way that we relate to others, particularly how we relate to our enemies. Verses 39 to 45, we're going to see how being a follower of Jesus changes the way we view ourselves. And again, particularly dealing uh, how to deal honestly with our own sins and, and how we can fulfill his calling uh, for our lives. And then verses 46 through 49, we're going to talk about how being a follower of Jesus changes the way we relate to God and his word, learning to submit to his authority and his lordship over our life. And I, I want to make sure that I say at the outset, because I've already said it's very difficult, all right? D- to do what Jesus is teaching, it's, I mean, it's impossible without him. But even with the Holy Spirit, because we're, we're still living in this world, this fallen world, and we have this battle, right, between the flesh and the spirit, it's difficult, all right? And just, I want to say from the outset that, that this is not like Jesus teaching and saying, this is what it looks like, and if you don't follow this perfectly, then you obviously aren't a believer. But it is what we're striving for. And it is the process that as we become more and more like Jesus, what he describes in this message is what we're going to see being lived out in our lives. Make sense? All right. Let's continue now. Verse 20, we read that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Being a follower of Jesus should change the way that we view our circumstances. Jesus begins this message with a series of four statements describing the person who is truly blessed. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you. The the Greek word that's translated as blessed is often translated as happy. Happy. But it's it's more than just a, a superficial happiness that's dependent on our circumstances. The the word that is used here is used to describe an inner quality of happiness or or a state of of bliss, a state of bliss. Today, we might use the word joy. Oh, oh, how joyful, how happy, how blessed, how blissful, how fortunate are those who are poor, (laughs) are those who are hungry, are those who are weeping, are those who are persecuted, happy, joyful, blissful, fortunate. Now, I wasn't there in the crowd that day. If I had been, I definitely would have been one of the ones squizzling my face, scratching my head. I'm sure that there were people in the crowd that day that, 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 were, that were thinking, Jesus, are you sure that you know what the word blessed means? 
Are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure that I just heard you say that the blessed person is the person who's poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. That doesn't sound like blessed to me. It's not exactly the type of thing that we think about when we think about being blessed. Listen, how many of you have ever prayed, God, I just pray your blessing on on, on my family? God's like, I can answer that prayer. Let me make you poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. Yes, that's exactly what I had in mind when I prayed that prayer. It's not what we think of, is it? It's certainly, I mean, come on. Okay, so some of you have been in church for a long time, so some of you are like, yeah, well, yeah, I know, I, I've read this. I know this. So yes, I think of this. Okay, sure. But you at least are familiar with it. It doesn't shock you, right? But people who are not Christians, people in the world, this is not what, when we talk about being blessed, this is not what we have in mind. So what is Jesus, what's he talking about here? Is Jesus literally talking about poverty, or is he talking about something more spiritual? Is he literally talking about hunger? Or again, is he talking about something more spiritual here? Well, I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Jesus is addressing both. He's addressing the very, listen, the very real physical and emotional circumstances that his followers are gonna have to face. It's real. It's real. Some of them have already faced it in their decision to follow Jesus. But he's also describing a spiritual condition of those who are truly blessed. For those of you who have read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you know that when Jesus speaks these, they're called the Beatitudes, right? And he, when he talks about the blessed person, he actually includes, Matthew includes eight, okay? And if you read those, what you'll find is that the, the, the eight that he includes, these four are there, but he's got four others. And, and those actually are more in line with what we tend to think of when we think about being blessed, okay? Attitudes like meekness and things like that. Luke focuses on the four, what we would call the four negatives, okay? The four negative things here. But in Matthew chapter five, you know that on, on two of those, Jesus explains a little further. And he says uh, in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor. And then he adds two words, in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. You see, the person who's truly blessed is the one who recognizes they have a great, great, great spiritual need. And the word that's poor here, it's like bankrupt. That's what it means. But until we realize how spiritually bankrupt we are before Christ, we cannot receive the grace and the mercy that God has offered through Jesus. Because if you deserve it, it's not grace, is it? So the first step in coming to Jesus, you gotta recognize your need. You gotta recognize that you are spiritually poor. You are spiritually bankrupt. Once we recognize our need for a savior, then we are in a position to receive his grace, his mercy, his salvation. Blessed, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 5, he also says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says that the person who is truly blessed is the one who has a strong desire for what is good, for what is right. The one who longs to see holiness, not only in their own life, but in the world around them. They have a hunger for holiness and righteousness. This is the person who is going to be satisfied, Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So yes, yes, there is uh, definitely a very real spiritual component to what Jesus is is teaching here. Jesus is, is addressing the spiritual condition of those who are blessed. They're those who recognize their need, those who weep over their sins, and those who have a hunger for righteousness. But, but he is also addressing the very real, the very real physical and emotional circumstances that his followers are going to face. And the key to understanding these circumstances, and the first three that are listed, right, Poverty, 
hunger, and weeping. The key to understanding these, these circumstances is found in verse 22, where Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn you uh, and they spurn your name as evil, what? On account of the son of man. That's the key. That's the key to understanding the, these, these circumstances that Jesus is describing. You see, Jesus knows. He knows that the, that the decision to follow him, it's costly. It's costly. I think our senses are so dulled in this area, right? Because we have been truly blessed in, in many ways to grow up in, in, a, in a world and in a, in a country where those circumstances don't typically describe our experience as a result of following Jesus, right? But I can tell you something. The world's changing. It's changing. But Jesus understands that the decision to follow him is costly. And so he looks into the eyes that these are real people. Okay, I get it. It's a 2,000-year-old book, right? But these are real people, who, real people who have made a decision to follow him. And Jesus looks them in the eye. He looks at his 12 disciples, and he knows what's in store for them, right? And so he looks around, and he says, when you follow me, you're going to be persecuted, and this persecution, it is going to lead to poverty. It's going to lead to, to hunger. There's going to be tears. There's going to be weeping. And brothers and sisters, when we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to live like Jesus and to love others like Jesus, there are going to be sacrifices. There, is going to, there are going to be tough, tough circumstances. There's going to be persecution. Pastor Dan talked about that last week, right? Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to hide it like, oh, if I can get them to follow me, then they'll find out later. He tells them right up front, you're going to be persecuted. It's so what's going to happen. I should probably clarify though. This is a really important point. Make sure that the persecution that you're experiencing is a result of actually following Jesus. It is so... Uh, irritating is too mild, but I'll use irritating because that's acceptable to say. It is irritating to see how often myself and other Christians, how often we, we talk about, oh, I'm just suffering because of my faith in Jesus. And the reality is, no, Chris, you're just being a jerk, right? Jesus wouldn't have done that. You're suffering because you're not walking in the spirit and you're putting it under the umbrella of Christ, but it's not Christ-like. That doesn't mean we don't take a stand for a thing. It doesn't mean we don't, but, but make sure that as we take a stand for truth that we're doing it the way Jesus would do it, right? And then you can truly say, I'm suffering because of my stance in following Jesus. He says, make sure, you, when you follow me, you need to know that you're gonna face persecution, but it's on account of following me, on account of following the Son of Man. In his letter to Timothy, Paul said, that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They don't, I don't know, is that one in the, you know, you, you can buy like God's book of promises? <laughs> I don't know, is that one in there? I don't know if it is, but there it is. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And, and, and you know, if you've read history, you know that, that many Christians throughout history uh, um, have faced unbelievable persecution for their desire to follow Jesus. And it's still happening today in other parts of the world, isn't it? Absolutely. And Jesus knows that many of the people who are standing right in front of him, many of them are gonna suffer incredible persecution. Everything from, from family rejection, loss of income, to physical persecution, and even death. If you've, ever, if you've never read it, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, great, great book to read before you go to bed. <laughs> but, but it's reality, right? I mean, these people suffered greatly for following Jesus. And so Jesus looks at his followers knowing what they're gonna be up against. They're gonna be up against persecution and poverty and hunger and weeping. And he says, when you embrace, when you embrace all of that on account of me, you're blessed. You're really blessed. You, not only are you blessed, you can rejoice. 
rejoice. You can picture this, leap for joy. Leap for joy, why? Because great is your reward in heaven. You know, for a lot of people, earth is as good as it's gonna get. But if you're a Christian, this place has nothing, nothing compared to what awaits us in our eternal home with Christ. Great is your reward in heaven. We are so, so, so blessed. And we don't, the blessing isn't just for when we die and go to heaven though, right? We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us who gives us peace to be able to endure circumstances unimaginable, right? So many blessings here on earth, aren't there? Think of that song, Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one. It's time to start counting your blessings, brothers and sisters. We are so, so, so unbelievably blessed. Jesus says that these temporary circumstances, weeping, mourning, hunger, all, they, they, they pale in comparison to the extraordinary blessing that belongs to you as one of my disciples. You are so blessed, he said. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter eight. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, hey, when you face these circumstances for following me, I want you to rejoice. I want you to leap for joy for your reward is great in heaven. And you know what's crazy? What's crazy? They did. They did. In the book of Acts, after Jesus, okay, Jesus was crucified. He was buried. He came back to life, amen. He then ascended to heaven and he sent his disciples out. He said, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna launch this thing called the church. You're gonna take the gospel all over the world. Amazing stuff, right? But in Acts chapter five, uh, we, we find out that his apostles, because they were following Jesus, they get arrested. They get arrested. And in chapter five, we read in verse 40, when they had called the apostles, this is the council, when the council called the apostles, they beat them and then charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they the apostles left the presence of the council, get this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For what name? The name of Jesus. They were rejoicing. Now, were they like, oh, that felt so good to be beaten. There are some people who are like that. It's, it's, that's weird, okay? It's why I don't like to lift weights because it's like getting a beating, okay? But, but no, it's painful, right? Getting beaten is painful. It's not like, yes, I get to take a beating. But the joy of recognizing they're beating me because I'm one of his. They see me as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus told us to rejoice when that happens. We're gonna rejoice. I don't know if maybe they leapt for joy. It doesn't say that. Maybe they were like doing like the heel clicks all the way down the street after being after being beaten. Or how about this one? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is, is talking to the Christians in Corinth, and he's talking about the Christians who are up in Macedonia. And he says that, listen to this, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wow. These Christians were facing severe affliction and severe poverty. How did they respond? They were filled with joy. They were filled with an abundance of joy to the point that they were overflowing in generosity towards the other Christians, towards other Christians. So much so that in the next verse, Paul says that they gave, they gave beyond their means. Wow. I, does that convict you at all? Does that convict you at all? Me, who has suffered so little, right? They who have suffered so greatly, and yet they overflow in generosity towards others. How does that happen? It, it, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. 
in the life of a believer that enables you to live that kind of life. It's, it's amazing. And of course, the greatest example, the greatest example is the example of Jesus. You know the story, right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed to his father. He said, if there is any other way, any other way, Father, if you are willing, he said, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Persecution's difficult. It's painful. I'm not, we, don't, we don't thank God for the persecution necessarily, other than thanking him for what it accomplishes in us, right? Jesus said, is there any other way? And God said, no. He said, well, then I embrace your plan. Persecution is difficult. Suffering is painful. Jesus despised the shame, but he endured it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? What was the joy? The joy was bringing glory to his father and bringing salvation for mankind, right? And Jesus said, any amount of suffering is worth that. To bring glory to my father and salvation to mankind, I'm in. I'll do it. Not that I want to suffer, but it's worth it. It is worth it. Jesus says, you are blessed when you suffer on account of the Son of Man. But he's not done. He's not done. Jesus isn't finished. After describing these four blessed conditions, Jesus now continues with a series of four contrasting woes. So let's take a look at verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus said, but, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now the word that is used for woe is, well, you could, it's the opposite of blessed, right? Think of, think of woe as a flashing road sign warning you about what is ahead, warning you that there is, there is pain, there is grief, there is calamity coming if you continue to go down this way. That's what it is. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus says, whoa. And these four woes directly contrast with the four blessings that Jesus has just described. Instead of poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted, we have what? Rich, full, laughing, and, and popular, or well-liked if you prefer. And you might be thinking, because I know I am, right? Hold on a second. Whoa, <laughs> right? Yikes. That's kind of scary. I mean, I'm not rich compared to some, but compared to many people in the world, come on, we are filthy rich, are we not? And I, and I may not, I may not feast regularly on lobster tails and, and caviar. Some of you do, I'm sure. Yeah, ribeye steaks, and I eat a lot of ve vegetarian, vegan burgers. Those are delicious. What you don't think so? <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. I mean, you know, look, I may not feast on the finest foods, but I, I can tell you, I'm not a hungry person. My pantry's pretty full. I haven't missed a lot of meals, you know? And, and the thing is, I, I may not be the most popular with everyone. I know there's people who probably don't like me. But honestly, I, if I'm being honest, I think, I think a lot of people might like me. I think I got people who would say, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. They might like me. So is Jesus saying that it's wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to be well-fed? Is it wrong to laugh? Or is it, is it wrong to be well-liked? Is Jesus saying that we should all walk around with gloomy faces, you know, empty bellies? Stop laughing. You're a Christian now. That's the way the world sees Christians sometimes, right? 
Hey, we need to own that sometimes, don't we? Is that the point that Jesus is trying to make here? Of course not. Of course not. You know, some of, the, some, some of my favorite brothers and sisters in Christ, they laugh a lot. They're fun to be around. I'm sure that you're thinking of some people right now, right? Some of the most devoted followers of Jesus that I know, they're very wealthy, very wealthy. In the Bible, you, I don't care if you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, God blessed some of his children with a lot of wealth, didn't he? I mean, Solomon had a little extra cash laying around, right? We read the story of Joseph last year, right? Joseph was blessed. He went through a lot of persecution too, but he ends up being pretty blessed, wasn't he? Had a lot of resources. See, the truth is God has blessed many of his children with wealth. But I want you to know this. I also believe that God has protected many of his children from it. Maybe God is protecting you. You don't think you're like, well, I'd like to find out. <laughs> There's a reason why Jesus said that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 19. It's because when we are blessed with material wealth, we can easily, easily become self-reliant. We can become proud. And we can lose sight of, of, of where our blessings come from. And we can lose, lose sight of our own spiritual poverty and our great need. We become far less dependent sometimes on others when we're able to take care of ourselves. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, I think it's really helpful if we can remember who Jesus is talking to. That's why I emphasized that at the beginning. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have chosen to follow him. They've chosen a path that will lead to persecution. He's just got done saying to them, listen, these things are going to happen, but you're blessed because you're, you're, you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you've got all these blessings that come with that decision. And he wants his, he wants his followers, he wants his disciples to know that the choice that they've made to follow him is the right choice. They made the right choice. Yes, following Jesus is going to lead to persecution. Yes, there will be difficult circumstances, physically, emotionally, right? But, but following Jesus leads to a life that is truly blessed, a life that will last not just now, but for all eternity. So he wants them to get that. But you got to know that, I mean, as they're seeing persecution ramping up and Jesus is talking to me saying, hey, by the way, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to weep. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be poor and you're going to be blessed. There are probably some who are sitting there thinking like, maybe we made the wrong choice. Is this really, do I really want to sign up for this? Do I really want that? So there, there's a choice to be made. That's real. That's real. And so Jesus says, there's, there's, there's an alternative. There's an alternative. You can choose to pursue me and embrace what that might bring. Or hey, you can say, no thanks. I'm going to go pursue what the world has to offer. I'm going to pursue these other things, right? Things which are temporary. Jesus says, one of those decisions, you pursue me, leads to a life that is blessed. You pursue these things, it leads to a life of woe. Life of woe. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry. Look at the word there, now. You will be satisfied. Blessed, or, but, but woe to you who are full, now you will be hungry. Blessed are you who weep, now you will laugh. But woe to you who laugh, now you will mourn and weep. Je Jesus says, woe, 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 woe to the one who would neglect their soul in pursuit of riches and fame and food and pleasure. Woe to the person who would sacrifice the eternal in pursuit of that which is temporary. How terribly nearsighted, right? But it's a choice. It's a choice. And you may get what you're after. If you choose to pursue these things, you say, this is going to be my priority. Following Jesus is not my priority. Getting rich, getting a well-stocked cabinet full of food and, and, and all the best entertainment in the world and avoiding persecution at all costs and having lots of people say lots of great things about me, being liked by everyone. If that's what you're after, 
The sad part is you might get it. You might actually accomplish what you are after, but at what cost? But at what cost? Man. It's really a matter of where your treasure lies, isn't it? Is your treasure here with, the, with all the temporary things that the world has to offer, or is it your treasure found in heaven with Jesus? In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither, uh, thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus is getting at. Where's your heart? What are you after? If you're after me and, and all these sufferings come, it's okay. You're truly blessed. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What if you get it? What if you get riches and fame and food and pleasure and yet you forfeit your soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? That's the question that Jesus is asking here. You have a choice. He's looking at his disciples and says, it's a choice. And you've made the right one. If you've chosen to follow me, even with all that you might have to experience, it's worth it. It's worth it. Blessed is the person who is willing to sacrifice that which is temporary in exchange for that which is eternal. A lot of you have read the story of missionary Jim Elliott, right? Many of you have read it. He was one of five missionaries who were martyred by the people that they were trying to reach as they were serving the Lord in the jungles of Ecuador. And Jim once wrote in his journal, and I think a lot of you probably have this memorized. And if you don't, it's worth memorizing. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think about that for a second. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is there any price too much to pay to gain what Jesus offers with him? a relationship with the God of the universe? Wow. See, Jim Elliott understood that the most valuable thing in the world is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wasn't living for this world. His eyes and his heart were fixed on Jesus. They were fixed on the kingdom of heaven. And Jim Elliott was willing to lay down his life in order to bring that good news to others. If you've never read his story, again, put it on your to-do list, your book list that you have. You know, Gates of Splendor is one. Shadow of the Almighty, another one that tells that story. End of the Spear is another. Um, I think there's even a movie out on that one, right? End of the Spear. After Jim's body was recovered, they found his journal. And, and these are the last words that Jim wrote. They, they, when they found his journal there on the beach, they were waiting, waiting to, to make contact uh, with those that they were going there to reach. And as they were waiting there on the beach, he would end up dying on that beach that day. But these are the final words that Jim wrote as he was on the beach that day in his, in his journal. He said, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him and please him. Perhaps in mercy, he shall give me a host of children, converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his de delicacies, whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him touch his garments and smile into his eyes. 
Ah, then, not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. O Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. And that was the final words he wrote. See, Jim Elliott, man, he, he understood the truly blessed life. And I think sometimes we, we have a tendency, we, 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 we hear stories about guys like Jim Elliott, right? And here's what we do. Here's what we do. We say, well, that's super Christianity. That's what super Christians do. They live their lives totally devoted to Jesus. And I think that that's just what Christians do. They say, I'm not living for this, I'm living for him. And I'm willing to follow him wherever you go. Now, he may not call every single person to go and do what Jim did. He hasn't called everybody to help lead Haitian ministries. He hasn't called everybody to, to be a pastor or everybody to be a, 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 a missionary or, or a doctor or any other, you name it. But he's called all of his children to be fully devoted to him and to embrace whatever that might mean for you. See, the attitude that Jim has is what's expected, I believe, of all of his children. And again, as I said at the beginning, you might not be there yet, right? But that's the goal. And how does it happen? As we grow in our love and knowledge of him, growing closer to him every day, he conforms us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. Amen? That's what he's doing. Well, next week, we're gonna take a continuing look at Jesus' sermon, and we're gonna see how Jesus, and following Jesus, also changes the way that we relate to others, particularly those who hate us. So listen, I'm taking a mental snapshot. I see your faces. Next week's a hard one, okay? And I'm taking note of who's gonna skip, okay? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But it is a hard one. It's hard, but we can only do it with Jesus. But we'll get there next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that through your son, Jesus, it is possible to live a blessed life, rejoicing, even leaping for joy as we experience difficult circumstances and trials and, and dealing with those who hate us because we recognize that we're seeing beyond all of that. We have a relationship with you, a relationship that is good now, that we can enjoy the, your creation now and so many blessings now, but beyond that, we have an eternal relationship with you through your son. And we have hope for eternity in heaven with you. Oh God, fill us this week with that knowledge and help us to become more and more like Jesus every day. We pray this in his name, amen.